Hello, everyone, and welcome to Headwise, the weekly video cast and podcast of the National Headache Foundation. I'm Dr. Lindsay Weitzel. I'm the founder of Migraine Nation, and I have a history of chronic and daily migraine that began at the age of four. Today, we are doing our monthly headache news episode with Dr. Tim Smith. Hello, Dr. Smith. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Thanks again. Thank you for being here. Dr. Smith is a regular. Uh, most of our audience is very familiar with him. We all love him. He is a regular because of his experience in migraine clinical trials as the CEO of Study Metrics Research. He is also a board member of the National Headache Foundation. He does an amazing job of discussing all the new information out there every time we have one of these news episodes and uh, we have a lot to ask him about today. So let's start with all of our new medical information. We're going to begin with a study that will be interested, interesting, excuse me, to parents of children with migraine or possibly people who had migraine as children. It's interesting to me. I love this study. There's a group that looked at the association of growing pains in children and migraine. Uh, so what did they find? I, I got to tell you, I had horrible growing pains uh, as a child. My poor father sat in bed at night. I'd, I'd yell and wake him up and he'd massage my legs. So I find this so interesting. So tell us what they found, Dr. Smith. I think uh, I think a lot of our uh, viewership will find this interesting because so yeah. many did have uh, so-called growing pains and mm -hmm. and uh, actually that's still what we call it medically because uh, <laughs> we don't have a path pathophysiologic construct to you know to it's it's they looked at this there's no blood flow abnormalities there are no bone abnormalities and there's no inflammation in the tissues and uh, but it's uh, it can be severely painful you know and. Yeah. Um, uh, as it turns out, so this this uh, group uh, from Brazil did a cross-sectional prospective study. So they identified these uh, children in a control group that had these growing pains, and they followed them for five years, uh, looking at lots of different variables. And, mm -hmm. and what they found was that if um, uh, children had growing pains, uh, they would have, and these are the severe, bothersome leg pains, mm -hmm. uh, especially after a day of physical activity and uh, and the like. And they found that 76%, about three quarters of children with growing pain will have the diagnosis of migraine within five years. And then 22% uh, of the children without growing pain will have migraine. So it's not a necessary requirement, but uh, right. it's about three times more common in, in uh, uh, in those patients, migraine is uh, than in patients without growing pains. So pretty interesting phenomenon. Uh, you know, I, I've never really thought about this before. And, and someone close to me, you know, has talked about having severe growing pains uh, when yeah. she was growing up yeah. and she has significant migraine, you know, history uh, for, you know, 50 years and, and dealt with it, uh, you know, as best we could, like all of us do. Uh, but that sort of caught my eye when I saw that just because of that personal knowledge and uh, sort of an interesting, you know, outcome from this study. And it was well done. I think it's believable. So, um, you know, good for those folks in, uh, in Brazil for, for looking at this. Yeah. Did they give a reason, any possible explanations or yeah. hypotheses on why they thought this occurred? 
Well, of course, it's hypo you know, it's hypothetical. Uh, nobody knows for sure, but uh, they they discussed uh, potential for sort of uh, a comorbidity because the central nervous system is more uh, sensitive and, and less adept at dampening out pain. We talk about allodynia. We talk about, you know, comorbid painful conditions. Mm -hmm. And this may be another expression of that. You know, the, the migraine brain is clearly different. The, you know, the nervous system is different in migraine patients. And uh, this may be yet another, you know, distinguishing factor. So I don't think it means that if you, you know, if a child has growing pains, they're, you know, they're doomed to have a life of migraine. Mm -hmm. But uh, it certainly, you know, points in that direction. And if they have a family history and if they have other, you know, manifestations, particularly recurrent sick stomachs and things like that, you know, mm -hmm. we're aware of, we are aware of how, you know, the cyclic vomiting of childhood and those kinds of things can be, uh, have a migraine core uh, basis to their, to their, uh, you know, physiology. And right. this may wind up being something similar to that. Right. Okay. Well, that is super interesting. Um, let's go ahead and move on to our next new study. It was just published looking at a very large data set. In fact, over 10,000 people um, to see uh, if those were with migraine were at higher risk for death from cardiovascular disease. And let's be honest, people have looked at this before. I think we've even discussed it on this podcast, but what did this particular group find? Yeah, this was an interesting uh, study. Now, what they did is they they took an existing database and did a new analysis on it. And this database we refer to as the NHANES uh, mm -hmm. database, N-H-A-N-E-S. It, it stands for the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. This has been going on since it was done like between 1999 into the mid-2004, 2005, somewhere in there. And they've got thousands and thousands of detailed medical histories and, and, and content on each patient. And uh, they answered pages and pages of questionnaires and it's all been chronicled in there. And so, um, and uh, basically they found that patients with a history of migraine, and I, I should qualify this because what they were able to search on was the diagnosis of migraine. And this is all self-reported by the way. Right. But patients reported they had migraine or severe headache. Right. And so if the patients have migraine or severe headache, their, their hazard ratio is 1.3, which is 0.3. I mean, that equates to a 30% increase risk right. of cardiovascular uh, disease over mm. the patients who don't have migraine. And these are this is a large popula population of patients over a long period of time. So mm. you can, you know, the questions become, well, were there other differences in those populations? Do we know? And the unfortunate thing is we don't know. And that's the problem with observational data is um, it's a good hypothesis generator. It doesn't explain right. everything, but it tells you where those associations are. And association, as my stats professor told me, association does not equal correlation. So yeah. uh, does not equal we, we causation. Yeah, our causation. <laughs> yeah. Correlation yeah, yeah. does not equal causation. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, said it wrong, but anyway, yeah. it's uh, um, even in, in the, the, the association was, higher in non-Hispanic Hispanic white populations. Mm -hmm. It was higher in thin people, as it turns out, mm -hmm. higher in people who don't have um, what we call metabolic syndrome. This is people who have 
diabetes or prediabetes. We do know that patients with migraine do have vascular abnormalities that people with migraine without migraine don't have. Right. And there's a lot of inflammation. There are a lot of secondary changes that occur from having migraine over time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there, there, there's, it's, it's clear that the response is not the same. So mm-hmm. um, let's summarize the results. The people that were most at risk were thin, female, non-Hispanic, and uh, under the age of 46. Is that what it was? Yeah. Younger, and, thinner. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so that it is interesting because they, they, did seem like healthy people um, yeah. and they were most at risk in this paper. So that is interesting, but I do think the take-home, like you said, is um, healthy lifestyle will hopefully help both our, our migraine issues and protect yeah. us against these cardiovascular risk factors that they found. Um, is there anything else on that paper that we've missed? Well, I think that's plenty. It's an interesting okay. paper. So yeah. <laughs> Um, there, there's a lot of, you know, sub analyses that they did on that too. Yeah. So it was yeah. uh, pretty interesting to read through. So the next one, um, I really love because I find it so interesting when we have, uh, a study a in the cluster headache population, cause we so rarely get, uh, much research for them. And it is, uh, what we know to be the most painful um, phenomenon uh, in mankind. And also I love genetic studies because I feel like genetic studies can really push forward a field. And so this next study, even though it's very tiny, it uh, satisfies those two requirements. It's a genetic study in the cluster headache population. And so uh, I'm excited. Can you please tell us what this little study found? Sure. The, uh, this was a study that, um, as you said, it was a small study. It was looking at a small cohort of patients that belonged to a family of cluster headache sufferers. So, you know, cluster headache can occur randomly and yeah. it can occur, it can occur in families. And there's a, the, uh, the familial hemiplegic and there's, there are the, it's their subtype that is known to, um, occur in, uh, uh, patients with a certain um, defect, you know, in their in the genomic defect, uh, but um, uh, that's for migraine, for familial hemiplegic migraine. So for cluster, we don't have as clear a, a, a definition on that. There are a couple or more uh, gen- genomic uh, abnormalities I sh- or, or um, associations, we should say, uh, that tend to occur in patients with cluster headache. And we've known about these for, for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the two that they looked at in this small study were, were they, they're called HCR-TR2, and the other one is the CLOCK or clock gene. Mm-hmm. And so we know that both of those have associations with, with, uh, with cluster headache. And um, there's been a lot of research looking into what those defects cause and what the pathophysiology happens uh, resulting from that. And this study is totally different because what they do with this is they go and they, they found a, a, a multi-generational family that had this uh, preponderance for cluster headaches. And even more than that, they had what they kind of had a familial periodicity. And so what that means is 
the patient's cluster headaches behave very similar from individual to individual, similarly right. from individual to individual. Cluster headache can can vary. We have these wide ranges. You know, frequency of attacks can be anywhere from every other day up to eight times in a 24-hour period. You mm -hmm. know, that's a huge difference. Um, and we know that a cluster attack might be as short as six weeks, but it might be as long as three months or more or right. five. And there's a, there's a tendency for it to occur circumannually, uh, you know, like uh, in the spring and the fall. Some people just have it in the fall. Some people have it just in the spring. Sometimes people have both. Yeah. But there's clearly some differences across the, the big population. But if you get down to these families, you can find sometimes families that not only have cluster headache, multiple members have cluster headache, but they also, their clusters behave very closely to the to one another so you know they might have an eight week cluster attack where it's you know three clusters every night you know and then nine months of reprieve or something like that before that the sounds next like week. a nightmare like everyone in the household having <laughs> attacks at the same time it just sounds yeah. terrible but i'm sorry to interrupt go ahead no, but anyway, they found this yeah. family that had this this story, and they looked at they did genome wide associate you know uh, uh, assessment. They did the whole they mapped out their entire genome, and uh, when they looked at this clock gene um, uh, variant variant and the HCRTR two variant, and two of these patients who had identical behavior of cluster uh, headache attacks in the family, they had both of those. Um, gene variants in their in their human genome. So this is looking, you know, this is the first time we've ever seen uh, this co-expression of these genes that we know that are somehow related to cluster. And, um, but they, but uh, it was interesting that, you know, both of those defects were found in this family and, and the family's expression of their, their cluster headache attacks uh, was very, very similar. So it doesn't answer all of our questions, but it kind of points in a new direction for us. And to think about, you know, we should probably be looking at these cluster associated gene variants um, more in a, in a potentially, and in, in maybe there's multiple, we should be looking for clusters of abnormalities. And, and so cluster becomes, um, you know, a coincidental, uh, yeah. you know, uh, use of, the of genes population. That, that come together. Yeah. Yes. And the clock so, gene actually uh, is a gene that has to do with periodicity, correct, and timing right. um, of these of exactly. these attacks. So that it is very interesting. Yep. Um, so moving on to our next study, um, this one is probably one of the most interesting ones we're going to talk about today. Um, and it there was even a commentary written on it in uh, the journal uh, called Headache. So as many of us know, uh, some of us get aura uh, with our migraine attacks and some of us don't. And um, there is data showing that aura may be caused by something called cortical spreading depression or depolarization. A lot of our audience has probably heard of this. It's sort of a wave of excitation of brain cells followed by the inhibition of the neuronal activity after the excitation. And there's always been a question hanging in the balance, um, so to speak, as to whether this aura phenomenon, this the, um, actually then causes the pain of the migraine attack itself. And so uh, somebody who was really motivated 
uh, went ahead and did a little study here and published this paper um, trying to find out if that was true. So what did they do and what did they find? Yeah, so to your point, you know, the, um, the presumption has been, or at least the working theory is that, you know, the this uh, spreading cortical depolarization wave, <clears throat> it's a mouthful, but basically it's this thing that happens to the brain, uh, the surface of the brain, the cortex of the brain, um, that's been observed to occur at the same time or commensurately with visual aura. Mm -hmm. and and then heralds the onset of the migraine headache pain and other disability disabling symptoms mm -hmm. and the presumption has been that the the aura is the initiating event and that for people who it's if it spreads across their occipital cortex the cortex of the back of their head where your visual you know recognition is mm -hmm. that uh, you'll see it but if it occurs somewhere else it may be silent and so we talked about these silent auras that may be occurring and there have been studies that suggested that were the case, was the case and some that, you know, it was hard to prove. And what, what uh, these researchers did, and this is a German study that was done by our very respected uh, research group, and they do a lot of functional Im imaging. And what they did, this is a case study, so it's not a huge study of, of multiple uh, patients. It's a study of one person who... One person. Did, All this data came from one very motivated subject. Yeah. <laughs> He did, he did a very heroic job of he did. Uh, thank of, you uh, sir pre presenting for daily mris say functional mri yeah. uh, so they could see what was actually going on in this man's brain yeah and as he as it as fate would have it of course he had some days he didn't have migraine and some days he did as usual you know that's the most common course but then he also mm -hmm. had some headaches with with aura and some without so they could look at, you know, these different attacks within the same individual and, and could understand which parts of the brain were lighting up and were abnormal, you know, before and during the attack. And what they found was this aura, which they could, you know, the, cord the CSD, the cortical spreading depression or depolarization, um, was sometimes present and sometimes it wasn't. But it didn't correlate with the onset of migraine pain very well. And people had plenty of migraines. So there was not a silent, you know, sort of uh, aura that, uh, that this, this uh, person had uh, for his non, non aura headaches. So the presumption that he had a spreading depolarization wave that just didn't get recognized was cert was basically rejected that, that we, we know that that's not what happened in this man's uh, brain when he wasn't having a, uh, uh, when he didn't, when he didn't have an aura, he was not having a depolarization right. wave somewhere where it just wasn't recognized. So that was kind of an interesting thing, and and uh, it's 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 changing. It, I wouldn't say it's totally debunked, you know, the thought, but it's pretty strong evidence that what we've assumed about, or what a lot of us have assumed about, the spreading depolarization wave may not be true. And the current thinking, the thinking of these authors is that it may just be uh, what they call a migraine epiphenomenon. And right. If your migraine brain is sensitive, you may be prone to having these spreading depolarization waves just because it doesn't take much to cause them to fire. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's more of a result of having a sensitive brain than, you know, being associated with actual causation to right. to trigger the migraine attack. 
The other interesting thing that they saw is that the areas of the hypothalamus, which is kind of like your, your centers for your involuntary and autonomic you know, activities of your body, this tended to be abnormal as much as 48 hours prior to an attack. So this makes us think more about the phenomenon we call prodrome or some premonitory symptoms that may be associated with a change of mood or change mm -hmm. of energy levels or some other symptoms that patients may have. And there's been a lot of study on this. We talked about one recently with, um, with one of the new migraine drugs having effect if taken during this premonitory phase or the prodrome. And so it kind of reaffirms that 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 there's some basic brainstem or hypothalamic abnormality that makes us the way we are and puts us at risk. And that this, if we pay attention, we may be able to identify those symptoms that mm. predict onset of migraine, but it's not aura. So okay. It's so interesting. Yeah. So to to summarize on that one. Uh, it might just be one patient, one very heroic patient, but it, it looked like with data from him that um, perhaps um, cortical spreading polarization is not required uh, for migraine to occur. Um, right. And so that was an interesting study, I think, for everyone. Are there any other studies uh, that were published recently that we should tell people about? Well, I, I did, there was a, I just, uh, the journal just hit my desk uh, today, and um, there's an article in the Journal of Neurology this month that uh, looks at uh, what they refer to as a late response to the anti-CGRP monoclonal antibodies. And so we all know this class of drugs that includes um, Iranumab or, or Amovig, and then there's Galcanazumab or, or uh, Imgality. There's the uh, Premonizumab or Ajovi and, and uh, the Eptonizumab or Viepti. These are the four monoclonal antibodies that block CGRP effects in the body that are, are proven to be excellent uh, migraine prophylaxis drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they looked at in this is they looked at response rate beyond the first three months for patients. And uh, it, if you look at response rates at 12 weeks, you know, three months in, the response rate is pretty much what you see reported in the literature. About 66% of people had achieved a 50% reduction in their monthly migraine days. And they tracked these folks out even further. And of the patients who had not achieved a response at the 12-week mark, uh, if they looked at them at 24 weeks in, so six months, uh, another 55% had achieved that 50% reduction. So mm -hmm. over half of the population that had not achieved that reduction by three months had achieved it by six months. So it's sort of making us look at this a little differently. And I will say that, you know, we didn't see these kinds of results in the clinical trials, mm -hmm. but, uh, but in this, um, in, in the, in this study, which was a, a, a prospective, what we call a real life study, you know, it just in regular clinic use with whatever support and, and instruction is usually given for patients with migraine in clinic. With, and they attributed this to the intervention itself. Right. Uh, I guess one of the shortcomings of the study is there could have been other things since this wasn't a controlled trial, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, could have uh, potentially contributed. But better is better. And we don't tend to argue with success. We we like it when people do better and if right. they get better, 
that's even better. But but it sort of calls into question the notion of giving it for two or three months and then giving up on it if you haven't gotten where you want to be. Um, and I thought the most interesting part of it, and I put on my glasses that I had, uh, I wanted to uh, <laughs> look at this, make sure I get it right, because I don't want to <laughs> misquote it. This is a brand new article I just got today. And um, when they looked at that subpopulation that were late responders, they differed from the early responders uh, with respect to their body mass index. They had higher BMIs, significantly higher BMIs. They had a history of more treatment failures. Uh, they had, uh, they were more likely to have psychiatric uh, diagnoses. Then uh, they were interestingly, and I don't, I don't know if I understand this one, but it, it was a, it was a definite phenomenon, and that is they were less likely to have unilateral pain. They're more Meaning likely to one have pain on one side. They were more, more likely, likely to have, to have either have... the whole head or both sides. Right. Um, and uh, then there was a slight difference too for. Uh, cranial autonomic symptoms are meaning like uh, bloodshot eye or tearing of the eye or runny nose, congestion, those kinds of things. Or so the, uh, res the people who responded late had more cranial autonomic symptoms? Yeah. And, okay. and they, they had a uh, little more allodynia too. So that was this allodynia being a heightened uh, sensitivity to painful or non-painful phenomena. Right. You know, so you, your, your brain perceives pain when you're not Right. Or experiencing a painful injury, you know, so skin sensitivity and the like that we, right. we talk about from time to time. That interesting paper, I, you know, it, it uh, sort of looked at a population that, uh, you know, deserves looking at mm -hmm. and gives us a little more color commentary on on uh, things uh, to expect. If I think practicing clinicians might look at this and say, you know, for my patients that may be a little overweight or who have failed lots of things in the past, um, you know, I might uh, give them a little more benefit of the doubt and and treat longer before we give up on this. And, yeah. uh, you know, and if patients have had a lot of treatment failures in the past, they're most of them in my book have been pretty desperate to try to get something, you know, that helps. And it may be yeah. that they just need a little longer trial of, of the stuff that they're, that they're receiving. Of the monoclonal know. antibody. And yep. and as someone who's uh, had migraine my whole life and had a number of treatments fail me, uh, I like to say it that way instead of the other way around. I didn't mm. fail. The treatment failed me. Uh, I would be very motivated to keep trying for six months sure. or so uh, if, if I knew that some data showed that that might help me. So I think that's a very important study. Um, and the take-home message on that one is uh, perhaps if you are going through the monoclonal antibodies and you haven't found one that's working for you, maybe keep trying it a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for joining us today. And thank you, everyone who is listening in. I hope we had something for each one of you. Please join us again next week on the weekly video cast and podcast of the National Headache Foundation. Thanks again.